Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Allison Ox, who is the author of What I Have Sexted Back in the 80s. Allison, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So Allison, I'm hoping you can start by sort of talking about why you wrote this book. What interested you in talking and writing to parents about sort of digital teens? Well, I mean, there's a short answer and a long answer. Um, the short answer I will start with, and then I'll probably dive into the long answer. But, but the short answer is um, I wanted to help create dialogue around the subject, and I saw the need for it. And um, I was, it's mentioned in the first chapter of the introduction of the book. I was driving my car home from spending a day talking to teens about sexting, and an 80s song came on the radio. And as music often does, it transports you into a different time zone. It can, at least. And in that case, it did. And I started thinking about myself as a teenager. And I was actually horrified by the thought of what I would have done with a phone as a teen. And when I got home, I wrote a little something about it. And I knew it was the beginning of a book. So, I mean, that's, that's the very short answer. And um, no, it, yeah. no, I was going to say it's interesting because uh, when I started reading your book and, and I appreciate that you sort of talk about here's an experience I had back in the 80s and then um, here's what I would do now because I, uh, you, you might be a year or two older than I am, but I was in high school in the 80s and I remember I always tell both my children, but also my college students that I am so glad that there were no cell phones and social media when I was their age. Yeah. Because my life would be very different. Yeah, for for sure. I definitely, I definitely think that that aspect is missing in a lot of our, in a lot of our dialogues with our kids is a, a lot of times we do a lot of finger pointing and shaming when something goes wrong. And I'm like, hey, wait a second. Um, do you remember how you were as a teenager? Now, can you maybe calm down a little bit and think about this? Because I, I really, I really think that we forget a little bit um, as time goes how we were. And I, I try so hard when I'm working with parents to get them to see the kids' point of view and to create dialogue with their children. And that doesn't always work. And this is kind of a humoristic way of approaching it. And I, I really saw the need as well because I, when I'm talking to teenagers, they complain about their parents. And when I talk to parents, they complain about their teens. And there's this huge <laughs> disconnect between the two groups. And I'm like, whoa. And there's this huge frustration. And I actually really just want dialogue. And I want to do that with, without shame or absolutes. And I hope when you read the book that you didn't feel like I was preaching that there was only one right way um, because I don't know everything and I don't think anybody does. I think if anybody says I know everything about this subject, I, I'm like, really? How can you? It changes every day. I mean, this is not possible. And so it's really about creating a dialogue um, with your kids about it and having a conversation, what's going to work best for you and your family and thinking about, are you setting a good example as well? Yeah. Yeah, no, and I agree. And you sort of walk through with this different issues and different problems. And when, yeah, one of the things I found interesting when I was reading it too is 
I often have this discussion. So I teach at a university and faculty are often just want the phones put away. The phones are horrible. We can't, because you start with this, my child is always on their phone, right? So we hear this all the time, but the phones are also a very useful tool for some of these young people. And they use them in, and even I use them too, I guess, not only young people, but we think about this. And so can you talk a bit, um, just starting out by that basic issue of being on the phone all the time and, and what you hear is the problem and then some of the things you suggest for how to approach that? Well, I, I mean, I think that when you're talking about being on the phone all the time, um, I think that that is a problem and it's learning to put your phone away and learning good digital etiquette, which some people call netiquette. I don't know if I really like that term, but it's like actually a cultural issue. So if you want to think back to when you were a kid, you watched your parents raise you yourself and you remember that. And then if you had problems, generally speaking, with schools or how to deal with the teacher, you could theoretically go back and talk to your mom about it and say, hey, how did you deal with this? I'm really confused. And, you know, we learn good table manners from our parents and we learn our culture from our parents and we learn our culture from our school setting. And we don't have that for the digital. So that is part of the problem, I think, is none of us have anything to refer to. None of us have any rules. We don't know, is this good manners or is this bad manners? And I think that there's a lot of confusion around that. And I agree with you that the phones can be really useful. I mean, I end the book with saying I don't want to give up having an encyclopedia in my back pocket. And I, I don't. I never want to give up having my phone. But I certainly want to know how to put it away and when to put it away. And, you know, if I talk about having good habits, it's like when I'm in a lecture, you're talking about university. I was in a university this week and I was in a room that was a training for actual teachers. And I was sitting at the back of the room observing and they were checking their emails while the lecture was going on. And one of them was reading a newspaper while the lecture was going on. And to me, that's just a real pity because I think show up, be there, be present, be in the moment. Why are you here? Go home. If you're going to read the notes, you know, don't sit in the lecture. And, and I found it distracting to myself that they were on it. So I think that those are the types of things that we have to learn. Hey, wait a second. It's not polite to be in a lecture and be reading the newspaper or answering my emails. If I'm going to show up, then that's the moment I should be in. And I think that finding those rules is coming slowly now. We're moving a little bit into a post-digital era, and I think we're finding them. And one of the things is talking about it with your classrooms, if you're an educator or a teacher or a professor at a university, what you expect from them, and then telling people what annoys you. And I mean, I'm sure you've seen people at dinner parties say, put your phone in the basket at a dinner party. Have you ever been to a dinner party like that? I have not been to a dinner party like that. Okay, well, so <laughs> there are. But I've heard about those, but I have not. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know that that's like setting it's it's it's, it's expectations. I want to have a dinner tonight where we're all conversing, and I want to have a phone-free zone. And I think talking about it and coming up with solutions is really good. And I do believe because I don't live in the United States right now, I see differences in the different cultures that I travel to in the way we deal with. Our phones, and I do believe having a phone out at the table is really bad manners. I just think it's really bad manners because I'm not present, I'm not paying attention to the person. 
And I think that we need to think about what we feel as bad manners ourselves as adults. And then we need to have discussions with our children about it and come up with some rules that work for us. And, you know, just like table manners, we might have slightly different opinions on that. And I think that's okay as well. Yeah, it's interesting because I have, when you talk about sort of talking to your teens or talking to your class or whoever you're working with about how to use the phones, I've been struggling with how do I approach that with my students in my class, right? So at home, we have sort of no phone at the table policies, you know, we have certain policies and things we do. But this semester, I just started and so far, I really like it is that and and I had talked to people about different policies and was reading things. So I have my students put their phones up. They're in a computer lab. So they all put their phones up on the computer. Um, And then about halfway through class, we do three minutes phone break. So I set a timer, then they get to use their phones for three minutes. And then we go back to everything. And it keeps them away from like wanting to be on them all the time. They know they're going to get a break for the phone. Um, and, And then I know that they're like listening when they're not on their phone, you know, and then I just let them be on their phone for those three minutes. And it seems so far, we'll see if it keeps working. Um, that is so much better than them checking them all the time. Well, you know, the, you know, I don't know if you've heard of Cal Newport, but he is a leader in digital minimalism. And he says, even just checking your email causes you to lose minutes of time and you're not doing deep work. And it's so important to be in the moment and to be focused. And I, th- I think that that's really a dialogue that needs to happen is, how can you be in the moment and where can you be in the moment and, and talking to students about it. I do feel that they like talking about their phones and how to disconnect and how to connect and how to use it. So I actually think if you're a university professor, this topic definitely is relevant for them and talking about FOMO and their anxiety and laughing with them about it. I, I actually do think that they will engage and talk about it and you could even get them writing about it because They have so many stories. I was at a comedy night, um, improv comedy night in a comedy club. And I looked around the room. This was about two weeks ago. And my 18-year-old son dragged me there. He's a university student. And he said to me, you're going to look old in the room, Mom. I was like, great, thank you. And we we were sitting there. And sure enough, I I looked old in the room. And I was thinking, okay, everyone in this room is between 18 and 35 tops. And um, people had to scream out words and then they would take the words and develop comedy and info around it. And I decided to throw out WhatsApp as a word to see what they would do with it. And the best comedy of the night did come from WhatsApp, but you could also see the anxiety on the faces of the comics when when they were doing it and how real it was to them. And as we left, my son said, Mom, I swear you're always at work. You just threw out your work at a comedy show. And I said, it was fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Because, Because there is a lot of emotion and there is a need to talk about it. And I have had young adults read my book and enjoy it and talk to me about it. And I have had... So it says on the front of my book, a modern guide to parenting digital teens derived from lessons of the past. And if I could do that again, I would write a modern guide for discussing the digital world derived from lessons of the past. (laughs) Because I have seniors in high school reading my book and enjoying it and reading it front to back and talking to me about it. And I'm like, 
really? You just read my book? And they're like, yeah, my mom left it out. And that, that's what I'm telling parents now is buy the book and put it on the table. And because of that eggplant and the fun cover, your team, I promise right. you, will pick it up. And then guess what? It's <laughs> illustrated as well. And so they're going to look at the pictures <laughs> and they're going to start flipping through it. And the kids told me that they love that I talk about myself as a team. And they think it's hysterical, you know, that I wanted to be a swimsuit edition model when I was a teenager and that I talk about these things and they connect with it. And I think that that's like what's really the beauty of this is I'm setting I'm, I was trying and I think I have succeeded in setting up something that's fun and light that you can use as a tool to start a conversation and think and ponder about how you want to do it as a family how you want to do it with your kids or how you want to live with your phone. Right. And, and you sort of move, right. So we start out with that phone thing and then you, and you mentioned the swimsuit issue. So you talk about that um, social media, like how do you get your, and this is the one that I talk to my kids and my students. So my, I have two children, but also my, you know, both my children and my students at school about this, like, thinking about what you post on social media and thinking about what you post on the internet because it's going to be out there for, even if you think you've erased it, you really haven't erased it. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, and that sort of ties into sometimes the sexting, right? So can you talk a little bit about that sort of social media, um, the sexting and, and how you sort of, the, the problems you've seen that parents have, and teens have talked about, and then how you've sort of uh, some of the suggestions you've given? Yeah, well, so when it comes to social media, I first and foremost is what you just said, it's going to be out there forever. And when I was talking about the fact that I looked at myself in the mirror when I was a teenager and crawled around in my swimsuit like an idiot, kind of trying to see, <laughs> do I look like a model? Can I be a model? And, you know, I think back to, you know, how I was and I thought, wow, I really would have posted some embarrassing pictures and I look at what university students and teenagers are posting now and quite often I'm I'm actually rather horrified that they would even want these pictures out there and I think wow you're going to really maybe regret that one day and um, I have one of my workshops I do with teens is called who am I and what's my brand so it's really about branding and I explain what a brand is and how branding works and, you know, I go into detail and I ask them to think about what do they want to portray when they're online? Like, what's your aim? What are you doing? What, what do you want to portray? And then we look at other people and that's when it gets interesting because when they start looking at other people and judging them and thinking about it, which they spend a lot of time doing it, but they have to do that kind of with an adult in the room. They're like, oh, oh. And I'm like, mm-hmm. And then sometimes you get some discussions between them going where a girl will say, that's not slutty. And the guys will go, yeah, it is. And I'm like, okay, this is really good dialogue right now because you guys are discovering what you guys think. Let's talk further. And I think that that has a huge impact on them to actually be able to talk about it. And I think they need to talk about it with their parents as well. Like, what do you expect from them? What kind of pictures are you okay with and what aren't you okay with? Are you okay with a bikini picture? Are you not okay with a bikini picture? 
One of the guidelines that I think is an absolute must for parents is you must follow your children on everything. Every single social media platform they have, you should be either a friend with them or following them. And that's a really strict rule in my household and my children know it. And they can ask me never to like or comment. I'm okay with that, but I follow it. And I then can put my veto in if I think they've crossed the line and I will explain why. And I think that that's part of teaching them how to behave in public because that's what they're doing. They're behaving in public. And I think they need an adult's eyes because they don't always understand what they're doing. I think that that's pretty clear. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. Like, like I said, I have two children and so one is a teenager and he, but he spends a lot of time um, memes that, you know, uh, video gaming, but he's not really into social media, but my nine-year-old who is a girl. um, So this might be somewhat gendered as well already, you know, even though she does not get to have social media, what is, you know, when she can use, when she's watching TV or whatever, she wants to watch TikTok. She uses Snapchat. She uses my Snapchat to Snapchat her, her aunt, but still she, she's very interested in how she's portrayed, um, creating, yes, images, taking selfies, being able to do that. And so it's really interesting too, to see that difference. And I already am starting to think of when she gets on social media, um, the things that I have to talk to her about that my son's just like, eh, I don't care. I don't want to do social media. But, but, but I will tell you, you mentioned your son in memes, correct? So you said he likes memes a lot. Yeah. And you so, talk about that. We talk yeah. about memes a lot. So mm-hmm. I have to tell you that for, I do, I, I hate this gender thing, but it is very much, um, there is a divide there. And I do find that girls post a lot of sexy pictures of themselves. Then there are the boys who post sexy pictures of themselves. And I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast, but they have a term for these boys a lot of times um, that is F boy. I'll just do it that way. And, uh, you know, these boys are the topless boys flexing their muscles and mirror pictures, you know, pictures in front of the mirror and all of this. And, you know, I mean, there is definitely that category of boys, but I find a huge majority of boys just don't know what to post. They'll post about games, sports, or memes. Those are kind of the three categories, or they'll create a meme account. And I also have a son. Um, I mentioned that he's at university first year right now. And when he was in high school, um, he did create an account without telling me because he's normal. <laughs> he doesn't always listen to me. And he knows, though, that I'm really strict. And within about three weeks, he created it with a friend and it was a meme account. And within about three weeks, this was hugely successful. And pretty much the entire high school was following it. And he thought, OK, my mom is going to find out about this. I, I, I'm going <laughs> to have to fess up to her. And so he's very, very smart. He took me to dinner and we talked about it. Um, you know, he dropped the bomb in a restaurant and I told him I had to follow him. And he was like, no, you're not allowed. And I said, then we're shutting it down. And he's like, no, you're not. And I said, oh, yes, I am. And I gave him 24 hours to come up with a solution on how I could follow him, respect his Um, space as a teenager and his desire for social acceptance and 
also that he would understand that there were a few names that I was going to veto. And I had vetoed three of them. I told him there are three. You're making fun of teachers in an inappropriate way. And he said, it's fine. And I said, then go have a meeting tomorrow with the teacher. Show them the names. If they're fine with it, I'm fine with it. And he went, are you kidding me? I'm not mad. And I said, there, you have your answer. If you don't feel comfortable laughing about it with your teacher, it doesn't belong there. Period. Done. End of story. It has to leave. You're going to take this down. And so he kind of rustled and blah, blah, blah. And he did come back to me the next day. And he said, I've created an account for you. Um, and you can follow me from that account. And we can have dialogue around this, but not everybody needs to know about this. And, you know, that's fair. That's okay. So you can be creative in your ways of following them and having dialogue with them. And we came up with a solution that worked for the two of us together. But, you know, boys are into social media. It's just in a different way. And he did need to be protected just as much because, you know, I don't want him posting inappropriate memes about his teachers that could get him in a lot of trouble, actually. Um, so, you know, I think that boys and girls have different troubles sometimes, but they both get into trouble. And I think when it comes to sexting, you know, if I like leap into sexting from talking about it, I would say that they're both very much at risk there. So this is not um, a gender specific problem. Both are asked, both send, both worry about if it's the right thing to do, and both will get shamed uh, for sending a picture. Yeah. And, yeah, and so I, I find it like one of the, sorry, one of the things you had talked about too was sort of giving them suggestions about, um, you know, making sure that you don't see their head, that there's not anything identifiable, right? So these are things that's interesting. It made me laugh because these are things I uh, have talked to with adults as well and my friends about, all right, if you're going to do that, that's fine. But even as an adult, make sure, right? Because adults have to navigate this too. Um, I, I, even as an adult, <laughs> I, I would agree because I can tell you that I had an adult come to me, a friend of mine and her husband actually got himself into trouble with a very similar situation and was involved in a blackmail situation. And I was like, wait, what? And she was like, yeah, your work is so important. It is so important. And I'm like, Wow. And so, you know, I, I, I think that adults make mistakes in this area now. And I think giving safe tips to teens is like saying, all right, I'm not really wanting you to do this, but if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. So I might as well teach you how to do it properly so that you can't get into trouble. And uh, when they start looking at it that way, then it also deters them a lot and slows them down in what they're doing. And I think that that's really helpful. Another thing that I find really helpful and it's kind of the way I work is when I'm working with a group of teenagers, I tell stories and I tell stories that really happened. I tell really good stories and I don't ever tell them not to do it, but it becomes very clear to them that they don't want to be in that situation. And so it gets them thinking about how they can manage it. Yes. Right. And I think, also with the sexting, making sure that um, that getting young people 
to realize that there's not a shame, like we're sexual beings, we're sexual creatures. Like sex is not a bad thing. No. Um, and right. And, and because I think there is some of that too, that shame that can come like often, right. It's like, you don't want people to think of you as like a sexual being. It's like, well, yes, they're going to, that's okay. But then how do you, how do you present that? How do you get to narrate and manage how you're talked about as a sex, right? Your sexuality, as opposed to having someone else determine that for you. And I do think that there are very big differences between human beings. There are people who are really open about it and who are absolutely okay with people seeing pictures that are more risque than other people. And that's okay too. And, you know, I talk about when you should spend time looking at pictures with your children and we also spend time reading comments with them and telling them how you feel about these pictures and why. And that and why is really important. And I think that that's kind of part of it. It's like you need to instill your values upon them. And, I mean, I was raised in a hyper-conservative family. So, I mean, that was definitely a no-go zone that it still would be in, in, my, in my religion. But I know parents who are much I live in Amsterdam. I mean, I know parents who are much more lenient in what they would allow their kids to post than I am. And that's okay, too. But there's definitely a dialogue around it. And that's what I want to see is that you understand what you're doing, why you're doing it, and what kind of implications it have for you. Also, maybe for your career. And that you think about it before you post something. And I don't think that teenagers are necessarily to the point that they actually think about that. Right. And I, yes, because I know that adults, right. I like many people don't think about that. And, and so some of the things that you bring up in here too, are, um, I thought important for parents to even think about, like, it's important because I, you know, the, another topic you talk about is porn and the easy access to porn. Right. But this is something that often I think parents and people are like, well, unless I find it, I don't want to talk about it. I'm going to assume that my child isn't looking at that. (laughs) Well, that is absolutely the wrong assumption to make because I can promise you they are absolutely looking at it or have looked at it before because it's like statistically pretty much everyone crosses porn at some point. I mean, I don't know that you can protect your child from having access to it, even if you do everything and put firewalls up in your house. I mean, I, I just, I don't know how to do it and I wish I could and it, it, it's a little bit one of my pet peeves right now because it like really drives me crazy that that we aren't doing more as adults and as government and as parents aren't talking more about it I was in a classroom giving a lesson and I was left a note um it, it's it's it, so the students left me like little words and one of them wrote on a little piece of paper and left it with my papers I'm addicted to porn. I can't tell my parents. I'm embarrassed. I want to stop. I don't know what to do. Please help me. And these were like seventh graders. And I have to say that I just like felt like somebody was like stabbed me that moment because I was like, oh, how am I going to help this kid? And I didn't have much time with them left. Um, It was kind of like a wrap up thing where they were leaving little words. And so I took the paper and I read it out. It was a group. And I said, I don't know who this is. I'm going to do the best I can to answer this. 
And then I did the best I could to answer it. And I talked about not to be ashamed and about dopamine. And I talked about how you could possibly stop and how, you know, to reach out to a school counselor. And I walked through all these kinds of scenarios. And I actually wasn't happy with my answer because I was so, I guess you could say emotionally shocked when I got the, please help me, you know, this little Mm. kid, please help me. I, (gasps) I wanted to cry. And then I went home and I wrote a letter. Uh, called Dear Porn Addict. And I printed it out and I put it in open envelopes and I delivered it to the school and asked them to give it to all the kids in that year. And they agreed. And I left it open so they could open it up and see and, you know, it was the same. And the reason I printed it out and didn't send it an email is so that they could stuff it in a book or under a pillow and read it and think about it. And I did work with those kids a year later and they were like, thank you so much for the letter. And I still obviously don't know who it was. They said, they, but they were all saying it helped so much. Yeah. I took tips from it. I took guidance from it. And I realized at that moment how much these kids need and want to talk about it. And a lot of times when I'm working with a group of teenagers, they say after we're done, that felt like therapy. It felt too good to talk about this. Oh, we could finally ask questions and they ask me crazy questions sometimes. I mean, and I'm like, whoa, and they don't, the parents don't want to talk about it. And they know that. And if there's one regret I would have with my book is that the porn chapter isn't bigger. I was scared for exactly the reason that you mentioned that people would not want to read my book because the title says sexting already and then porn. And they're like, oh, no, we're not going to read this. And I kept it really light because I thought it was scary for parents. and. The, the incident I was just talking about happened about three weeks after I had handed in the final manuscript of the book. Otherwise, I think I would have added that letter to the book. Right. Like, and it's in, a bit of a pity. It's interesting because I, and I think it goes along with the sexting as well. Like there's these topics we often as parents feel comfortable talking with our children, but I have learned um, that in talking to both my children, uh, but especially my son, since he's a little older, about um, porn and sex and sexuality, there was just an incident which sort of fits in with all of this at his school where um, there was uh, two uh, young people caught um, in the bathroom. Uh, a girl was giving a blowjob to a boy in the bathroom. And there are now, it's very fascinating, um, so the boy is my son in my son's grade and memes are going around making fun of him for getting caught in the bathroom. Right. And so having to have, Uh. having to have a conversation, right. So in, in some ways I, um, it is, it is very refreshing to see that the girl isn't just being shamed. Um, but having to have a conversation with my son then about that, um, if both parties are are wanting to, you know, from my point of view, if both parties are consenting and they want to do that, there is nothing wrong with what they were doing. They just need to pick the right place to do that, right? Like thinking about the place. Yes, the bathroom was a very bad choice. Yes, like, but and, and that's sort of what is going on, right? So, the, so it's interesting because the memes that are going around are not about the act; it's just about the fact that they picked the bathroom, right? Like. Like that was a dumb move. Um, and But having that conversation, right? So social media allows everyone to know about it very quickly. 
in ways that they yeah. did before. And then they're using, they're using like memes, they're using their phones to create this dialogue around the situation. And I feel, you know, I'm good talking to, so it allows me though, to talk about to my child about sex, about choices about when and where to have sex about like, do you talk about this online or not? Um, but it's really interesting because I'm sure most people wouldn't, uh, many people might not want to have those conversations. I, I find that the majority don't. I was I was selling um, my book when it first came out in school, and I was asked not. To, they didn't want to put me in the lobby of the school because elementary kid schools is uh, elementary kid is high. It was K through twelve and uh, private school, and they said the elementary kids could see it, so they put me off in the side wing, which was really ridiculous. And it made people more interested, actually, right. that I was in the side <laughs> wing. So like, what is that? What's going on? But I'm like, well, yeah, you just did that. Um, and then uh, the other thing is then there was a group of moms that were sitting at a table and were talking, and, you know, I could overhear uh, and they were like, I would never buy that book. I have a fifth grader and the word sex thing is on it. How scandalous. And the very next week in their grade, I heard that there was a on the class WhatsApp group chat, a link to porn was put up. And all of the kids in that grade clicked on it more or less and had access to porn. And I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. you'll buy your child a phone, but you won't talk about these things. And to me, I think that the moment you give your child free access, you know, buy them a smartphone, give them an iPad. You better be willing to have these conversations with them. And if you're not, you probably shouldn't get them a phone. So if you want to get a third or fourth grader a phone, you can pretty much be sure that they're going to come across these things. And um, I wish that more parents would feel comfortable having these conversations. And like I said, that's another reason I like the book is because it's, it's kind of for everybody and the kids can read it and get some advice and think about it. And it can just kind of be laying around the house and you can like talk about it in a roundabout way. And it's a conversation starter. So, and I've heard parents tell me that it works. They lay it on the table and their kid picks it up and then what are you reading mom? And then a conversation starts. Right. Yeah. That's sort of the same thing I did with um, both. My kids have books that were lying around that had to do with like, what's my body, what's happening with my body, those kinds of things. And I'm like, here, these are the books. Look at them when you want. If something comes up and you want to talk about it, let me know. You know, and that worked really well, right? It's that same kind of thing by giving, uh, letting your children know, I'm willing to have this conversation, but I'm going to let you, uh, let me know when you're ready to talk to me about, you know, talk to me about it. So the yeah, other, I, I, I just, I feel that, Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, you go. Go. <laughs> no, I just wanted to say the other thing that I really think that the game has changed. Um, I was, I, I feel like I was lucky enough that I worked with teens in, and families in schools before the digital era and before social media erupted. And I feel like it is like really kind of a neat thing that I've been able to watch the whole thing happen. And I've lived it as a mother as well. So, you know, my my eldest child is 24 and, you know, she was still in the MySpace era and when Facebook first came up and, you know, I stumbled along with her. And I think that that's kind of like 
a really nice thing that I've been able to, I was working in a school, I was working with teenagers. And I mean, I'm guessing from your age and your career path that you've been able to watch this as well and see the shift and the change and the way it's absolutely a necessity to change the way we talk about certain things because of what is going on online. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. I remember too, and I'm seeing this shift even now, is that I was, even though I was working with young people who had phones and had access, um, I was much more tech savvy than they were. For it, And I'm seeing a bit of a shift, right? I'm seeing students who are a bit more um, cautious and critical, uh, but that media literacy piece just did not exist for this, for a time frame where um, young people were just sort of using their phones or they didn't know sort of, or they didn't know or think about how to use those phones or, or, or social media or media just in general. Right. Um, And so I'm seeing that shift as well. And I usually know if I know about it uh, or if it starts to become something that is often used in the classroom or talked about by adults, then young people are doing something else. They're done with that. Right. Um, yeah, that's right. The other, so another um, thing you talk about, it sort of relates a bit to the memes, um, is the gaming and um, gaming culture yeah. and the addiction. So can you talk a bit about that as well? I wanted to get in the gaming um, discussion as well. My son's a huge gamer. Um, so let's talk about gaming a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, g- gaming, I think that I, uh, I'm happy to talk about gaming and gaming is something that is really difficult because it's fun. I mean, most kids really love gaming and they get into it. And this is not gender related. I mean, yeah, there are probably more boys that are really into it than girls, but I know a lot of girls who are really into gaming as well and are girl gamers and really like it. And, um, it makes your life sometimes easier if your kid's really into it because they're completely passionate about it and they're very quiet at home when they're gaming and they don't bug you so you can get on with whatever it is you're doing. Um, and that's actually just, you know, part of the risk. So I, I, I think when, when talking about gaming, the, the very first thing is um, not to panic first and foremost, but at the same time, be honest about the risk. So I find a lot of parents who say, my child would never, my kid's a good kid. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so that doesn't have anything to do with it. Like, you know, good kids are good kids everywhere. And everyone's a good kid, by the way. Just like to tell you, I think all kids are good kids. Um, yeah, some kids will just get sucked into it and get sucked in too much. And honestly, statistically, one in a hundred will be severely addicted to gaming and have like a real problem. But seven out of a hundred do have a problem. Like they they really have a problem. And those seven will all know someone who's seriously addicted because of course those are their friends. And so, you know, you have to be realistic. Is my child in this one of these seven? And if so, how can I help them? And how can I understand and make it so that they don't become addicted? And when I, I studied social pedagogy and social work, I have a dual degree in the two. And when I was studying this, they said, you know, back in the day, we were all worried about drugs and uh, bad habits and stealing and theft and things. Um, that was a huge topic. 
And one way of keeping kids out of trouble was having a hobby that you loved, something you loved to do, that you wanted to do. And um, with friends. And I think that making sure your kids have something other than gaming that they love doing is really important. So it can be a sport. It can be playing Dungeons and Dragons. It can actually be another game, just a board game. It can be going to the movies. It can be can be so skateboarding. It can be so many things. But I think that it's really important that your child does have something outside of the house and that they have contact with other kids that is not in the virtual space. It's really important. Um, so that you know, the theater groups, after school groups, it can be so many things, but that they're active. Um, that is to me probably the biggest thing to watch and to look out for. Are they engaging socially? Do they say no to really fun things with friends so they can gain? You know, if they're invited to go for the weekend skiing up in the Swiss Alps and they say, no, I'm going to stay home because I want to game all weekend. Yeah. And they're good, a good skier. I'd probably be a little bit worried. Does that make sense? Oh, to- it, it was interesting reading this because we have, you know, different rules in our house. And one of them is you have to be in a sport and you have to be doing some kind of like music yes. theater band. Um, and. And for my, my, because my son is older, so he, we live in a small town. And so he just sort of is, if his, if your friends show up and they want you to do something with them, you leave, right? Unless you have a responsibility at home, but you don't get to stay home to play a video game when everybody shows up. If you're all sitting around the house together in a room together playing video games, I'm okay with that because you're socially doing it, Right. But being, I agree. But, yeah. Right. Like, like that's fine. Like, if you're all sitting around on your phone, like, but you're still socially together. But you don't get to say, "I want to stay in my room by myself" when everybody shows up and you have nothing else. Exactly. To do. So we have these rules. So if you and if you're, yeah, <laughs> if you're not getting the grades, I know you can get. Um, and you're you decide you don't want to play your sport or you don't want to be in band, then you don't get your video. Right. Like, if you can do all these things. And you get to play your yes. games. And, I, I, and that brings me to another thing is you have to understand your gamer by playing with them sometimes. Yes. And like being social with them on the game and like having fun and learning what they love because they love it. It would be horrible if your child loved band and you never went to see them perform. Yes. You know, you, you need to go watch them. So play. It, it's just like if they were a football player and you never once went to the game and you didn't understand it. Of course you would go. Of course you would show up. Yeah. And, and plus. So show up to their game as well. And I'm. I was going to say, and plus, a lot of times, young, I, I mean, if they're anything like my child, they love the fact that I'm not as good as they are, right? If I start to get good at the game, then it's like, yeah. I'm moving on to a new game. But it's sort of like, you're such a noob, mom. You can't, you know? Exactly. And I'm like, yeah, that's okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but engaging. Yeah, no, that is, that is true. And that's engaging with them and talking to them about it. And, and I, I also, you know, I wrote that. It's not about time, but it's more about how you play the game. So are you playing with your friends? Is it a Saturday afternoon? Did you make, you know, get some pizza? That is pouring rain outside or it's winter and there's a snowstorm. I don't mind. That's okay. You're with your friends. But it's, 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 it's those things. And then making sure, like you said, that they have things that they have to do, like chores. Like don't make life too easy for your kids. Mm-hmm. make them make them empty the dishwasher and take out the garbage and clean the bathroom and 
um, and those kinds of things. And I can't even tell you how many parents have gone away from giving their kids chores because they're like, well, they just complain, so I just do it. And it's like, no, make them do the chores. Um, and, and all of these things are really important. And if they keep it out of their room, which is probably the most important point for me, and they eat properly and they go to bed on time and they do their schoolwork and they have social contact, they're probably fine. And it's okay that they're gaming. It's when those things go out the window that you have a problem. Yes. I'm like, you're not, I hate, always tell my son, if there's one thing you're not going to be, you can become anything you want, except for one of those people who sits in their house or in their room for like four days, doesn't change, doesn't eat and just sits and plays a video game and is eating like, you know, Doritos and drinking Mountain Dew, uh, like anything else you can be. But it's interesting. I lived in Norway for a year. We lived in Norway for a year last year. And, and I traveled around and talked to teens. And, and one of the things that came up is sort of the differences in the United States and in Norway. Um, but the importance, of, and we talked about gaming a bit, because now there are esports scholarships, right? Like these are things that you can actually yes. go to yes. school for. So that's another thing. Like how do you... Like talking to them about like this is important, but there needs to be that balance, right? So yes, you can. Okay, so when so when I'm talking about esports with kids, I know that actually in Scandinavia they started esports training, and these kids have to eat a balanced diet. They have to do things that are not gaming. They have a certain time that they play games, but it's not like. 12 hours, it's more like six to eight where they'll be playing and training, but then they have to do other things. They have to do other cognitive tasks to keep skills. They have to get fresh air. They have to go outside. They have to do sports. So they have like a coach watching over them. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yes, because it's really important for your well-being and they don't want the kids to burn out. And I, I mean, I personally am not a huge fan of e-games and I don't think it's great that they're doing that right now because I just think it's a way for the economy and the, I think that the, it's a marketing thing and these kids are earning a ton of money and then everybody wants to do that because they see the prospect. But at the same time, you look at it and they're setting it up like they would a football game. Right. You know, you go and watch your favorite game or game and you're in a stadium and they do a pre-show and everybody's like, Whoa, and they're screaming and it's exciting. And I've talked to gamers who are really into this and they're like, yeah, but it's just like the excitement of going to a game. And I guess if that's what you really like, that's okay too. I mean, I have to, I don't like it. Like my, my son always says you have something against gaming mom. And I'm like, yeah, you're kind of right. I do, but that's okay. I accept it. Um, it's not my thing, but I think that you have to understand that it can be addictive. And you know, that being said, I'll just be really honest with you. Sports can be addictive. Yes. Oh yes. Um, there are people who, who, who push it too, too far with sports. And so I think that you need to keep that into, into perspective uh, as well. And, you know, eating disorders are bad as well. And, you know, only doing sports and not eating and that, being fixated on that, that's also not healthy. So it's about how to help them find balance. And I usually feel that kids are better off when and they don't fall into this trap when they're happy everywhere else in their life and i find that the kids who definitely fall into the trap is when something else is going on mm -hmm. and adam alter is adam alter is a psychologist um at nyu i believe and he's great he wrote a book called irresistible and he i heard him in a podcast 
And he said something that stuck with me because I think it's so beautiful. He said that, um, you know, behavioral addiction is a real thing. And some people will say, well, if they say some things like, well, then uh, why isn't everybody addicted to opiates? And he's like, well, you know, behavioral addiction is real. We don't all get addicted to opiates. And the reason is, is because many of us have a scratch soul. And those who do get addicted to drugs, it's because a lot of times there's something else going on as well. Same with alcoholism. There's something else. There's an underlying thing that is causing us to want to escape. And kids that are using gaming as an escape, is not. that's not a good thing. So I think that that's, as a parent, something to look out for is my child gaming because they're escaping from a reality or is my child gaming because they enjoy it and they're doing it with their friends and it's a social activity. Right. Two completely different scenarios. Right. And that makes, yes. And that makes sense. So the other thing, the other sort of big thing you talk about is bullying and sort of online bullying, um, which has become a really big issue uh, and something that uh, policies are being put into place around this. So can you talk a little bit about that sort of what you have seen and some of the suggestions you have um, for bullying. All right. Well, bullying is probably, it, bullying is a really big subject for me because bullying ties into all of the other elements as well. You know, if a child is bullying, he might become a gamer. If this child sends a sex, they might be bullied. Um, so, I mean, I just feel like bullying is ever omniscient and present in, in this world that kids, you know, we, we talk about this. And yet when I'm at education conferences, I know that at one of them, I had a slide that said something along the lines of uh, 8% of kids say they've been bullied online, which is really low, actually. Yeah. And I was like, um, this lady, this lady, I think it's higher than that. And I, I don't exactly remember what I had on the slide, but I remember it was a percent and bullying. And it was a while ago. And a, a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, would you stop using the word bullying? And I looked at her and I said, okay, do you want to tell me more about this? And she looked at me and she said, I hate the word. And I said, okay, do you want to tell me more? <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, well, do you think that there's really bullying? And I said, yeah, yeah, I do actually. And she's like, well, I am so sick of moms coming in and saying, my child's bullying, my child's bullying. I hate that word. I pretty much am like, no, no kids are bullying. Kids are just mean sometimes. And I kind of like <sighs> sighed and I was like, yep. Yeah. And actually, you have a point, but that's also part of the problem. And she was like, what? And I said, yeah, we don't want to talk about these things because they're really difficult to talk about. And it's always existed. But social media makes it so much worse. And cell phones and group chats and disappearing messages. Oh, disappearing messages in Snapchat. You know, sometimes I just want to make Snapchat disappear for that because, you know, kids send these really mean messages on a platform where it disappears and then there's no proof. Um, a few things that I have personally learned about bullying from watching kids being bullying, bullied, uh, talking to kids who have been bullied, talking to parents who have walked their child through it and having to deal with it on a personal level is I find that kids who bully are really hard to spot and it's like super hard to like make it tangible because they're very sneaky about it. And I feel that most of the kids who bully and re research by the way confirms this 
these are confident and like socially successful kids. So a lot of times you think of the bully of like this mean, wild, you know, child. You have this image of them. And that is not who usually bullies. And usually they're really adored by teachers because they have great social ease and they're capable of hiding what they do because they're they're just so socially at ease with themselves and confident. And um, that's part of the problem. So if a kid comes and says, this kid is really mean to me, and it's like a star athlete or, you know, a student body president or somebody who is just loved by teachers, they'll go, no, no, she's such a, you must misunderstand it. And so it makes it really, really, really hard. And um, I've seen some really mean stuff happen online. And kids that would be so ashamed for sure if their parents saw what I have seen and what I have been, you know, shown on group chats. It's it's pretty horrifying. And I actually was part of a situation where I took control of a teen's phone for a while that was being bullied and tried to see if I could get it to stop by using really polite dialogue. Yeah, that didn't work very well. <laughs> and <laughs> that just didn't work very well. And I was really surprised at how how quickly a whole group would gang up on another group and destroy them. And it was almost like the child was being stoned. Um, and when I work with kids, I show a picture from the Middle Ages of stoning. And it's a gruesome picture. It's awful. Some teachers have looked at me before like, what? You're going to show this to kids? You're going to show this to middle schoolers? I'm like, yeah. And the kids are like, oh, yeah, that's my life. Oh, yeah, I understand that. And then we talk about how to deal with the situation and what it means to be bullied. And we kind of define what's mean. And we talk about actually the bully itself, because actually bullies are victims, too. And that, that is something that is really true. And statistics show this as well. So I like to tell a story about a kid who's really upset with his parents and he's gotten in a lot of trouble and he's in a room and then somebody annoys him on the group chat and he lashes out. When I tell the full story and I really develop this story, all of the kids are sitting there with their mouths literally hanging open and they're like, oh, it's not okay what he just did. But I like, I get it. Like, I get it. And I'm like, you do, don't you? And that's called empathy. And you need to understand that it's not okay and I'm not excusing it, but how can we help him get away with it? So I like to teach some conversational tactics online and when to disengage because sometimes disengaging is really important. Like ignoring someone is a really powerful too. Just don't answer. Like go away from it and talk about it in person the next day. And so I have this whole toolkit for kids on how to deal with an online situation. And this needs to be dealt with not only at home with parents, but in the classroom as well. And I think over and over and over again. And um I actually don't think the central problem in bullying is aggression or the bullying itself. It's the fact that we don't talk about it and teach kids how to deal with situations that develop into bullying. And we need to have a lot of character education and discussion around it. And I think it's a whole community issue. And I think that we need to talk about when somebody stands up and says, my child has been bullied or I have been bullied rather than get angry and say, my child's not a bully. Say, I'm so sorry you're feeling this. I, I am so sorry this happened to you, or I am so sorry I hurt your feelings. 
And I have a whole session as well that I do with kids on how to say I'm sorry. And, you know, we teach kids how to say they're sorry for like bumping into somebody or interrupting them. But we need to take that further and teach kids how to say I'm sorry when they've hurt someone, even if they didn't intend to. And we need to practice that. And I think we need to practice it as adults, quite frankly, as well. So to me, that's really important. And that's really a core part of my work when I go into schools is talking to kids and the community because I think it's a community issue. And I think that if you have a healthy community, you're going to have some mean kids that make mistakes because, hey, they're human and they're kids and they're growing up and they're testing their boundaries. But I think that at the same time, it's going to be one-off mean situations where kids then forgive each other and move on rather than a situation where a child is isolated and feels that they have no way out. And that's when I would say bullying happens, when it's repeated, when it happens multiple times, when the child feels they have no way out and they have no one to turn to, then you've got crisis. And I thought I appreciated uh, some of the suggestions you had, but there was one and, and I've had, I've talked to friends about, um, group chats and kids being in this situation, right? Where someone says something really nasty in a group chat and no one sort of responds. But you talked about that idea of um, if you see something, uh, sending that person who's sort of been bullied or been pressured uh, a text or a message um, personally saying, you know, I see what's going on. That's not okay. Sort of defending those people. And I do think like teaching your, um, your child to if something's going on that you don't like uh, to step away, like you were saying to either uh, remove yourself from that group or to talk to someone about it. And, um, and so I think you had some suggestions that I were, uh, I was like, yes, these are really important and, and helping sort of to diffuse very potentially um, volatile situations. That, that, at that point that I just said, contacting the person the next day and saying, hey, or calling them that night and saying, hey, I see what's going on. Are you okay? That is like so key. When I have that picture of the middle ages up and, you know, the kid, the guy's being stoned, I say, if, if, if you know this person, if you're somewhat friendly with this person, reach out to them immediately and say, hey, are you okay? I like you. And they're like, oh, and I, I like doing this by saying to the kids, how many of you guys have ever gotten in trouble with your teacher before? And they like all raise their hands pretty much. There's always like one or two kids who don't raise their hands. They're like, not me, I'm perfect. I'm like, yeah, right. And then I say, how many of you guys have gotten in trouble by your teacher and you didn't do it, you didn't deserve it, it's not your fault. And I always have like about six kids who are literally jumping out of their chair. Like they are like standing, going, <laughs> and I'm like, so what do you want to happen when you leave the room? What do you want your best friend to say to you? And they're like, it's okay, or you didn't deserve that. I'm like, exactly. And I'm like, do you want your best friend to get into it with the teacher? And most of the time they'll go, no, no, no. And I'm like, exactly the same thing on a group chat. Don't get involved. Tell them you like them. You can handle a lot of things if you know you've got your people. You need somebody, you need friends. So as long as you've got people who have your back, you're going to be okay. Tell your friend to disengage. Um, and then I also have a method on how to get the rock out of the bully's hand, you know, how to, you know, that kid who's the bully, he's also a victim. So if you're friends with him, give him a call on the phone and say to him, Hey, I see what you're doing online and dude, I like you and I don't want you to get in trouble. And if someone screenshots it, 
you could end up in the principal's office. Um, are you okay? What's going on? Do you want to tell me about it? And what you've done in that is you've said to him, hey, I like you. You're my friend and I care about you and I don't want you to get in trouble. And I've asked you what's going on and I've also diverted you and disengaged you from the group and hopefully started a conversation with you. And I think that that's like a really important thing is talking about those things and putting it in the framework of a story so that you can say, hey, this is what's going on. Use a story, describe it. And kids relate to that really well. And they're like, oh, yeah, that does work. Oh, yes, I can do that. And I think for parents learning how to do that and guiding their kids and walking them through it is, is really important. So we've been talking for a while. Um, yes, we have been. <laughs> I know. So I was just wondering if there's anything else um, that you want to make sure people know from your book or from what you sort of talked about Um before we sort of wrap, you know, is there any last or final things you want to make sure that people sort of take away? Um, probably that if you feel like you've been doing it wrong or you've made mistakes, that it's okay. Um, you can actually create change in your home and you just have to believe that you can do it and want to do it. And I think that that's really important because a lot of parents just kind of throw up their arms and say it's too late. I don't believe it's too late. I think even with a 16 or 17 year old, you can sit down and say, you know what? I think I goofed up. Let's talk about this. I'm not going to maybe change all your rules, but I'd like to have a conversation with you about what's going on. And I want to look at this book with you and have a conversation. I think that it's that that's probably really important that you can have these discussions. Even if you think it's too late, it's never too late to have these conversations. And the last thing that I probably would say is the biggest mistake you can make is not talking about it. I don't know that there's an absolute right or wrong way. I just know that if you don't talk about things with your kids and let them know that they can come to you, that's a mistake. So my final question to you is, and you might be and you might not, are you working on anything else right now? Do you have another sort of project or book that you're thinking about that you want to talk about? Is there any sort of uh, thing that's going on and you may or may not have? I do. I have something actually rather large going on right now that's really exciting. Um, I was contacted by the Swiss Institute of Technology, which is it's a big uh, technical institute, a little bit like MIT, um, also that kind of standing. And they are working on how to implement digital with kids and they need a social emotional bit. And they asked me to create stories for really young learners. So for preschool and first and second graders. And I have with my colleagues, so this one I didn't do all by myself. It's a group effort. We have created a series of stories and we've created two characters called Oscar and Zoe and we have 10 books written already. And Oscar and Zoe have all kinds of digital adventures and they're storybooks for teachers to use mostly in first and second grade and then to take home with them and share with their parents and to be able to understand digital safety at a very young age and in a very playful way. And I have to say they're fantastic and I'm really excited. They're being illustrated right now. And they should be ready for the 2020-2021. The first five stories will be ready for next school year. Ten are written and five will be finished, illustrated, and ready to go. And I'm really excited about it. That sounds like fun. It is. It's a lot of fun. I've never done picture books before. Um, 
And, and, and I also have my curriculum, which is launching. So that's pretty exciting too. So I have over 80 stories for teenagers on a website platform that teachers can use to engage in dialogue and conversation with their students. And I have pretty much every age level covered on there. That's how the Swiss Institute of Technology found me. Um, so I have, and it hasn't gone up for sale yet, but it will be coming soon. And I have all of these issues porn, bullying, everything. I have stories that are really relatable written and then questions that go along with it to help teachers and parents have these conversations with their kids. And like I said, over 80 stories are already written and I'm pretty excited about it. Fabulous. Well, Allison, it's been wonderful talking with you. Um, again, this was Allison Ox, who is the author of What I Have Sexted Back in the 80s. And um, thank you for joining me on New Books Network and New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.